Awesome, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Hey, my name is Byron. I get the great privilege to be able to serve here as the lead pastor. If you're a guest, welcome. We're so glad that you have decided to spend your Sunday morning with us. All those who are watching online, welcome. We're glad to have you. Today, I want to talk to all of the perfect people in the room. This sermon is for the perfect people. You know, people who have never had a bad day. This sermon is for all of those who have never made a mistake. You always remember to carry the one when you're doing your long division and multiplication. This sermon is for those who have never sinned, never said anything you shouldn't have said, never done anything you shouldn't have done. This sermon is for every person who when they stub their toe, they say, ah, oh, cheese and crackers. Uh, this sermon is for, you know, the perfect people. The people who always tithe 10%, not 9%, but 10% above and beyond, first and best to the Lord. This sermon is for those who are at every single service. They serve one, sit one every single Sunday morning. They never miss a first Wednesday prayer night. The altars are open every single time. This sermon is for all those people who have never faked a headache to get out of small group. What y'all think I was going to say? What, you think I was going to say something else? What else do people fake headaches to get out of? No, this sermon is for the perfect people in the room. If you're perfect, do me a favor, go ahead, raise your hand. Where's all my perfect people at? Okay, put your hand down because you just lost your perfection. That's called pride, Okay. <laughs> Because we all know that nobody's what? Perfect. Nobody is perfect. When we're studying through the life of David, here's the temptation that many people are going to come to. They're going to look at David's life and they're going to say, yeah, that's great for David, but that's just not who I am. Like, I'll never be like David. Anybody ever read through the Old Testament and you look at the characters of faith and you're like Moses and, and Abraham and... And Elijah, or maybe in the New Testament, you're thinking about Peter and Paul, and you're like, I am never going to be like those people. I just can't be like them. It's a temptation that many of us think that we'll never be like David. I mean, we see David as a, as a shepherd boy who's anointed to be the future king, and you're like, that ain't me. Or maybe you see David in the palace as the right hand to the king, and you're like, yeah, that's, that's not me. Maybe you see him on the battlefield, conquering and victorious and in warfare, and you're like, that definitely ain't me. Or he's slaying Goliath, the nine foot six giants, and you're like, that's definitely not me. And there's a temptation that we might come across whenever we're studying through the life of, of David, and you're like, but I will never be like him. But I want to show you today that you are more like David than you care to admit. Do you know why? Because David, he wasn't perfect either. You're not perfect, and David wasn't perfect. Today we're going to look at the biggest mistake and the greatest regret, the worst day of David's life. We're going to see that David is not perfect. Over the course of this study, we've been taking a look at how each one of these lessons from David are prototypical or pointing forward to the coming of a, another king. His name would be Jesus. So 
David was a shepherd, and Jesus is our good shepherd. David was a warrior. Jesus, the book of Revelation shows us, he is a warrior. David was a worshiper. Jesus is the one that we worship. David slayed Goliath. Jesus defeated Satan. David was a king, and Jesus is our true king. And so in a lot of parallels, David and Jesus are very similar. But there's one thing that we learn about David that we cannot learn from the life of Jesus. You know what that is? That is what we do when we sin. Because Jesus, he was without sin. That's the whole reason we believe in the gospel is because Jesus is the only person who lived a perfect life, a life without sin. He's the only one who never said or did anything that he should not do. He always lived according to the word and to the will and to the ways of the Father. Jesus was without sin, and that's the reason through his death, burial, and his resurrection, he alone is able to forgive us of our sins. Why? Because Jesus was perfect. You are not perfect. David was not perfect. I am not perfect. But Jesus, and Jesus alone, is perfect. Perfect. If you're taking notes, pull out your note sheet because here's the big idea that's going to guide our thoughts through this series. You ready? Nobody's what? But anybody can change. Jesus can change anyone. He can meet you where you're at. He can pick you up, turn you around, and he can transform your life forever. No matter who you are, where you're at, what you've done, no matter what regret you have, no matter what sin keeps you awake at night, you cannot outrun the love of God. Because the moment you get there, God's already waiting for you. You cannot out-sin the forgiveness of God. You know why? Because you're not that special. You can't out-sin his grace. You can't out-sin his goodness. You can't out-sin his mercy. You can't out sin the plans and purposes that he has for your life. And yeah, sure, nobody's perfect. But the good news is this, no matter who you are, where you're at, or what you've done, anyone can change. And so who's perfect in the room? Nobody? Okay, who's, where's all my imperfect people at? All right, so it looks like I'm going to have to change my sermon because I'm preaching to a different crowd than, I, than at first service. No, I'm just kidding. All the sinners show up at second service. <laughs> Kidding again, kind of. <laughs> this sermon is for the imperfect people. This sermon is for the person who thinks, if I walk through the doors of the church, it's going to burn down. This sermon is for the people who have said things they shouldn't have said, done things they know they shouldn't have done. This sermon is for those who have guilt and shame, condemnation, and they live their life with regrets. This is the sermon for the person who, when you lay your head down at the pillow at night, you're haunted by your past and your mistakes. This is the sermon for every man who is struggling with a secret pornography addiction. This is a sermon for every woman who's had an abortion. This sermon is for a person who is struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. This sermon is for a, a person who is recovery in their addiction, but they can only last six months before they fall off the wagon and they have to pick up again. How many more white chips do you get when you go to a 12-step program? That's who this sermon is for. 
This sermon is, is for the person who has cheated on their spouse. Or maybe this is for the single mom who's raising three kids. You've been divorced twice and you're wondering, not only will God love me, but will a man ever be able to love me? That's who this sermon is for. This sermon is for the liars and the cheaters. This sermon is for the ones who have done too much and you just wonder, is it possible? Can God really forgive me after everything that I've done, after everything that I've said? Would God ever love me? Will he ever take me back? Will he ever be able to forgive me? Sure, he may forgive others, but will he be able to forgive me? Sure, I can see him working in your life, but is he going to do the same thing for me? This sermon is for every single person who has ever asked this question. Can God really forgive me? That's who this sermon is for. And I want you to know from the outset, the answer is yes. Yes. Yes, yes, God can forgive you. God wants to forgive you. God will forgive you. And that's the reason that God, through the Spirit, has brought you here to listen to this sermon today. Because God can, God does, and God will forgive anybody who asks. If you have your Bible, turn me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. I want to say this. I met a man leaving this service from the first service and he had tears in his eyes. He's a big man, owns a CrossFit gym, and he was bawling his eyes out. And I said, hey, are you okay? And he said, this morning I was having breakfast. He's been coming for a couple of months. And as he was having breakfast this morning with a friend, he asked this question. He said, I just don't know if God can really forgive me. And he came to the service today, and the sermon was called, Can God Really Forgive Me? God orchestrated this man's life to hear this message, and I believe that many of you would be a prophetic word, just as it was for him, because you struggle with that question. You struggle with, can God really forgive me? Can God actually love me? Is there really a purpose for my life? I mean, after everything that I've done, all the places I've been, and things that I've said, can God actually forgive me? And if he can forgive that man, and if he can forgive David, and if he can forgive me, and he can forgive hundreds in this room right now, you are not special, and you are not unique, and you are not beyond the grace of God for your life. Yes, God can and God will and God wants to and God desires to and God wants to save you. He wants to forgive you of that sin. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to learn from the worst day of David's life. Here's what we're going to read. Chapter 12, we're going to do basically the entire chapter, so I hope you like your Bible. And you can read fast. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. David, at this time, he's the king of Israel. Samuel has passed away. And Nathan is the new prophet to the nation. So think about Nathan kind of like David's pastor. He's the spiritual leader over the nation of Israel. And Nathan came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat out of the morsel and drink from his cup with him and with his children. It used to, um, he cup it in his, lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But instead he took the poor man's lamb. Can somebody say that's messed up? 
and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. I mean, that's like some Tom Cruise stuff. You can't handle the truth. He said, who did it? You did. You are the man. And, and says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you as the king of Israel. I have delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you the master's house and the master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And this was too little. I would have added so much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord. Behold, I will rise up evil against you, and out of your house I will take your wives before your eyes, and I will give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing in all of Israel before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Highlight this verse. We're going to spend the preponderance of our time looking at verse 13. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless... Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. But Nathan, then Nathan went to the house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted, and he went and laid all night on the ground. And when the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose, and he went, and he washed, and he anointed himself, and he changed his clothes. And when he went into the house of the Lord, he worshipped the Lord. He went into his own house and he asked, as they set food before him, he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and you ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Shall I go to him, but he will not return to me? We all will not go, return to me. Then, verse 24, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and laid with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because the Lord loved him. We all know what it's like in relationships to do something that causes an awkwardness or a tension or a separation between two people. I mean, maybe you experience this uh, with a friend. Maybe a friend 
all of a sudden they start ghosting you, they start dipping on plans that you might have, or they talk about you behind their back, and then all of a sudden, what happens? You never talk to that person again. You, you block them on social media, right? Instagram, block, unfollow on Facebook. You're like, I want nothing to do with them. Why? Because there is a tension in that relationship. We get it when it comes to work relationships. Maybe you become the subject of talk at the water cooler. Maybe somebody takes credit for uh, an accomplishment that you did and now you don't trust that person anymore. The relationship has been severed and now you go into work and it just feels like you have a, a force field around you that says, don't talk to me, I'm mad at everybody. And it creates a, a toxic environment. I see people nod their heads, they're like, yep, pastor, this happened to me just this week. Or maybe it's in relationships with your family. Maybe in-laws become outlaws, amen. Or, or somebody who, or your brother or your sister, you're estranged for them. Now you don't get together, you don't come over after church on Sundays because the family has begun to fall apart. We all sense that, we all feel that in every relationship. But I think one relationship that we feel it the most is probably within our own marriages. Like couples just get in fights and arguments and disagreements. I want you to know that as your pastor, listen, in my own marriage, me and Ashley, we get in fights. We get in fights just this week. I mean, it's crazy how much arguments and disagreements that we go through. I know we love each other, but you know why we get in so many fights? Because Ashley's not perfect. I know, y'all pray for her, right? That girl is not perfect. But we all understand that in relationships, whenever someone says or does something, that goes against the word or the will or the ways that a relationship is supposed to work, what happens? It causes separation between two people. And we understand it in every relationship, but I think one relationship we think that it doesn't happen is our relationship with God. That whenever we sin against God, guess what? It creates a separation between God and us. Why? Because that's what sin does. Sin always brings separation. It is a violation of God's word, his will, his ways. The Bible refers to sin in a lot of different types of metaphors. Sometimes it says that sin is the breaking of a law, that God has designed the universe to operate in a way that produces maximum flourishing in our lives. And so when we violate that law, then we're enacting sin into our lives. Some people say, well, I just disagree with God's laws. Well, you're not God, and so you don't get to make the laws. So when you're God, you can make your own laws, and you're not God, and so therefore... You don't make the laws. It's violation of God's laws, violation of God's commands. But one thing that's very interesting is it's also breaking God's heart. Because we serve a God who is a relational God. In fact, in the chapter just before this, it says that what David did displeased the Lord. The, the indication there in the Hebrew is that it broke God's heart. Because up until this point, David was known as a man after God's own heart. But in this moment, he lost sight of his love for the Lord. And he put his focus on himself and his desires. And instead of pursuing after the heart of God... His sin broke the heart of God because that's what sin does. Sin always brings about separation. Everything it touches and infects, it affects the relationship between two people. We feel it in every relationship, and that same sin is separating us in our relationship with God as well. Sin always brings separation. So what do we find here in this story? 
Well, here's the context for the story is that David sees a woman bathing on the roof. Her name was Bathsheba. And he wants to sleep with her. And so he calls Bathsheba to his palace and he has sex with her. And then she becomes pregnant. The problem is, is that she was married to a man named Uriah the Hittite who was off fighting in a war that David should have been fighting himself. But because David stayed home, he found himself in a situation that he had no business being in. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. He thinks, I'm going to cover this up by, 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 by bringing Uriah home, and then Uriah will have sex with her, and then nobody's going to know. But Uriah has more honor than David does. He shows up, and he says, it's not right for me to be on vacation or sleep with my wife while my boys are out in battle. And so he refuses to sleep with his wife. He goes back onto the battlefield, and so David's plans, he has to go to plan B. So he calls his general and says, withdraw the troops in the middle of battle so that way Uriah will be killed. And so the general withdraws the troops and Uriah is struck down and he is murdered. And then David swoops in as if he's the good guy. He comes in marries Bathsheba and he thinks nobody's going to be in the wiser. Nobody's going to know any different. Nobody knows everything's taken care of. But listen, you can hide from people, but you cannot hide from God. You can fool people, but you cannot fool God. You can lie to others, and you can even lie to yourself, but God will not be mocked, and you cannot lie to God. He knows all, he sees all, and he judges everything. Just because nobody knew it doesn't mean he was keeping a secret from God. And God loved David too much to allow him to continue to live in that sin. And so God decides, I'm going to send Nathan the prophet, and he is going to confront David on his sin. And so Nathan comes walking up, and David sees him, and he says, hey, Pastor Nathan, you know, you know, to what do I owe this privilege for? And Nathan comes in, he says, you know what, I heard the craziest story the other day. There was, there was this rich man and a poor man. This rich man, he had a whole bunch of sheep and cattle, and this, this poor man, he had one little lamb that he loved more than anything else in the world. Well, the rich man was going to throw a party, and instead of using any of his own sheep, he went and got this one man's little lamb, and he killed it, and he served it to the party. And David is indignant, and he just rises up, and he says, who is this man? Where is that? I'm going to kill him. And then Nathan, he says, you are that man, mic drop. And in that moment, David realizes his conviction. He recognizes that the sin that he has been trying to hide for so long, that he's been trying to cover up, hoping that nobody is going to notice, all of a sudden, that sin is exposed. And why did God do that? Because God loved David too much to allow him to continue to live in his sin. You know, God loves you too much to let you get away with your sin. Because your sin, it separates you from him. It separates you from his love. It separates you from his grace, his purposes, his plans for you. Your sin separates and severs the relationship that God desires above anything else in your life. Because we serve a relational God. Here's what we see is that sin brings separation. But repentance, it brings about reconciliation. See, sin It always 
always leads to death, but repentance, it brings you back into life. Sin always hurts, but repentance is what brings healing into your life. Sin leads to destruction, but repentance, it leads to deliverance. And when we sin, God invites us to repent so that way we can restore the relationship that we had with him before. That's why God initiates. I want you to see something is that God initiates the repentance here. Right? David's not the one running to God. God is the one running after David. David's the one hiding from God, but God is the one who's pursuing after him. David is the one who's trying to hide his sin. Listen, God cannot forgive the person you pretend to be. God sees it, he knows it, and he loves you too much to let you stay in it. And so sin, it brings separation, but repentance brings about reconciliation in our lives. So for you and for me and for us, when we sin, because we have sin, we will sin. Newsflash, you're going to sin again. For the wages of sin is death. No one is perfect. No one is righteous. Not even one. Not you either. So what do we do when we when we sin, we do what David does. He falls down on his knees when confronted and convicted. And he says, against the Lord, I have sinned. And then how does Nathan respond? He says, God has forgiven you. I want you to know, for those of you who are struggling with God, can you forgive me? The answer is yes. Yes, God can forgive you. Yes, God wants to forgive you. God will forgive you. But here's what you got to do. You got to repent. You got to ask. And when you ask, it will be given to you. And when you repent, that relationship will be restored. And so we're going to learn this lesson from the life of David. And I think this is so incredibly important for all of us to, to really grasp is this one word that is going to change everything in your life. Like if you get this one word, Literally everything in your life is going to change. It's, it's so important. It's not a word we use very often, but it's a word the Bible uses quite a lot. It's this word called repentance. So what is repentance? If you're taking notes, i got three points I want to share with you today. The first question is this, is what is repentance? What, what does repentance mean for us? Here's the first thing that we see is this. We see in verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned. Against the Lord, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sins, and you are not going to die. Now, typically, when we hear that word repent, we, we hear about it in a negative connotation. Like, immediately as I'm talking about repentance, everybody's white-knuckling their seats right now going, oh, no, what kind of church did I just get into? Right? Oh, the repentance sermon. I know none of y'all woke up this, you know, summer morning and be like, oh, I can't wait to hear the sermon on repentance. Make me feel, oh, 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 oh. make me feel bad, preacher. Nobody woke up just wanting to hear the message on repentance. It may not be what we wanted, but it is a message that everybody needs. When we hear the sermon on repentance, we, we typically think about the televangelist. You know, he's wearing like an oversized suit, looking like a used car salesman. And he's just going, repent, 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 you filthy sinners. Turn or burn, flip or fry. Repent, repent. Or maybe you hear the... The guy on the street corner with the a big old sign that says, God hates you, as if that was a loving enough invitation. <laughs> oh, God hates me? Well, let me just sign on up. Where do I go, right? 
We typically hear that message of repentance and it carries along with it a, a negative connotation. But here's what I want to show to you is that repentance is not a bad thing. Repentance is actually good news. Because it's through repentance that we are reconciled into a loving relationship with God. Repentance is actually an invitation. It is an invitation to relationship. So you shouldn't hear the word repent as if God hates you. You should hear the word repent because God loves you. It's an invitation back into a relationship. God would not invite you to repent if he did not want to be in relationship with you. God would not tell you to turn from your sins if he did not love you. God would not tell you to trust in him if he was going to reject you. No, it is an invitation back into relationship. It is not a bad thing. In fact, it is actually good news that there is a loving God who is willing to take anybody at any time. It's an invitation into a relationship. That's what repentance is. In fact, in the Greek, the word repent is metanoia, which means a change of mind, a change of heart, or a change of direction. In the Old Testament, it comes to the word shuv, which means to change. So let me give you just a, a couple of illustrations to better help you understand. Now, when you're driving down the road, let's say you pass an exit, and you have your Apple Maps on, and all of a sudden, Siri comes up and it says, take a U-turn here, or Siri says, turn right, or you missed your exit, turn left. You know what Siri's doing in that moment? Siri's telling you to repent. <laughs> Siri's telling you, turn around. That's what repentance means. It means to, to turn around. You don't get mad at Siri for telling you to turn around. You say, thank you, Siri. Right? Whenever God tells you to turn, you say, thank you, Lord, for leading me in a better direction with my life. Here, here's an illustration of what repentance looks like. Like, like. like this is where God and then this is Satan, right? This is death and this is life. Your entire life is facing towards your sin, towards living in sin, and then heading towards death. You say, well, that's just the way everybody lives their life. Well, Jesus says, broad is the road that leads to destruction. And so when you start seeing a lot of people walking down the same path, living the same way, doing the same things that you're doing, that should be a cause and a concern for you to stop and for you to turn around. Because broad is the path that leads to destruction. You're headlong towards sin. Here's what repentance is. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, you stop and then you turn around, you do an about face, and now you're living towards the ways and the will of God. Sure, the road's less traveled, but it is the road that leads to life. That you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus. Here's what repentance is. Saying no to your sin and saying yes to Jesus. It is an about face. It is a U-turn. It is a 180. It is a change of direction. It is a change of life. That's what repentance is. And that's what happens when David repents. That's what happens when you repent. And that's the life that God is inviting us to live. A life of repentance. And some people might ask. They say, well, how often should I repent? The answer is, as often as you need it. Like our God doesn't run out of grace. He doesn't run out of mercy. The Bible says his mercies are new every single morning. We don't want to abuse God's grace, but it's always there for us whenever we need it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he was nailing the 95 theses on, on, on the door, here's what he says. All of the Christian life is to be a life of repentance. Repentance is not an event. Repentance is a decision. 
Repentance isn't just a one-time decision. It is a lifetime decision. Repentance is not just emotion. It's not about how hard you try or how real your tears are. Repentance is evident by a life that is transformed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ on their life. That's what genuine repentance is. And all of the Christian life is a life of repentance. Birds swim or birds fly, fish swim. Christians repent. That's what we do. We live a life of genuine repentance. And here's where I get so nervous for so many people. It's because we live in southeast Texas. Many people I get scared for because they think that they have a genuine relationship with God. Why? Because they were raised in the church, because they went to Awanas, or maybe that youth pastor scared the hell out of them one day, and they came down front, prayed a prayer, and they believed that for the next 20 years, no matter what they did, everything was just covered, because sometime they prayed a prayer back when they were 12 years old. And I get worried because there's a lot of people who are banking their eternal existence on a prayer they may or may not have said when they were 12 years old. So how do you know you're a Christian? My, gr- my grandma prayed for me. Nine out of ten people, if you were to go to Home Depot right now and you ask them, hey, are you a Christian? I bet they would be willing to say yes. And you ask them, well, why aren't you in church right now? Why are you at Home Depot and not in church right now? Because a lot of people might have faith tattooed on their arm, but they don't have saving faith inside of their heart. You need to understand something is that repentance is not lip service. It's a lifestyle. It's not just what you say. It's how you live. It's not just what you profess, it's the faith and the way in which you live your life. Repentance is not lip service. Oh, God, I'm sorry, then go and do whatever you want for the rest of the days. No, repentance is a lifestyle. It is a constant. It is a continual saying no to sin and saying yes to Jesus. And when you fail, you pick yourself up and you keep following after him. Repentance is not lip service, it's a lifestyle. I think one of the scariest verses in all of the Bible is right here in Matthew 7, 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. That's a terrifying verse. Because there are people who have lip service, but they have no lifestyle. They say they're sorry, but they don't display genuine repentance. They claim to be a Christian, but yet when you survey and you look along on their lives, they're not living a life of of genuine repentance, saying no to sin and trusting in Jesus, walking in relationship with God as their father. What is repentance? Repentance is turning from your sin and then putting your trust and hope in Jesus Christ as your savior. That's what repentance is. So that leads us to the next question. Because it's so important, we have to know what repentance isn't. Listen, it is possible for people to profess a faith that they do not possess. You know, people say a lot of things. Just because somebody says something doesn't mean it's true. And just because you read it on the internet doesn't mean it's true either. People say all sorts of things. Let me give you an example. I am a six foot two ballerina. Why are you laughing? Well, you don't think I'm a six foot two ballerina? Of course I'm a six foot two ballerina. You say, uh, no, you're not. Well, how do you know? Uh, because you are short and you can't dance. I see you up here in front of worship trying to dance. You can't dance. You can't even clap on beat. <laughs> you are not a six foot two. I say, well, maybe I identify as a six foot two ballerina. Maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm a ballerina in my heart. Maybe I'm in like second position while I'm preaching right now. You don't even know. 
You don't know. You don't know. Who are you to judge me? You can't judge me. You don't know my heart. They say, well, no, I don't know your heart, but I do know your actions. And there's nothing that you say or do that makes you look like a six-foot-two ballerina. I'm just calling as I see it. You are not a six-foot-two ballerina. It's the same thing when it comes to the Christian faith. Is there are some people who would say that they are Christians, but it is not evidenced by the life that they live. How is faith evidenced? Faith is evident by obedience. Faith is evident by our actions. We are not saved by our works, but as by our works, the world will know who Jesus Christ is. Faith without works is, is dead. And so if I say something and I don't do something, then I'm probably not that something. It is possible for people to profess a faith that they do not actually possess. This is why repentance is so incredibly important. Why repentance is something that we all must wrestle with and generally, truly ask ourselves. Am I right with God? Am I one with God? Am I in a relationship with God? Am I following after God or have I fooled myself? Just because you say something doesn't mean you are that something. And just because you profess a faith, it doesn't mean that you possess genuine saving faith. How do we possess genuine saving faith? Acts 2 tells us, repent and believe. Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. First words out of his mouth, repent and believe. How do we become right with God? It is only by and through genuine, authentic repentance. So let me give you some things that repentance isn't. Just so that way we're clear and we all understand. Here's the first thing that repentance is not, it's not getting caught. Okay, we all know that there are sometimes and some people who they say, I'm sorry, but they're not really sorry. They're just sorry they what? They're sorry they got caught. They're not really sorry. You know why? Because they would go and do it again if you didn't catch them. They would keep doing it if they didn't catch them. Right? Every person who gets a Speeding ticket going 80 and a 65. You're like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Are you really? How many other times have you been driving 80 in that 65? And you know you're still doing it again. You ain't sorry. You're just sorry you got caught. That's not, that's not genuine repentance. That's just being afraid because you got busted and you got caught. That's not genuine repentance. We see the same thing happen between two kings, King Saul and King David. A very similar situation happened to Saul. Back at 1 Samuel chapter 15, here's what we read. When the kingdom was removed from Saul, it says, I have sinned. Saul says, I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Looking pretty good, laying on thick. Why? Because I was afraid of the men, so I, I gave in to them. Now I beg of you, I forgive me of my sins. Please come back with me so that I might worship the Lord. On the surface, it looks exactly the same. It looks no different. He got caught. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. But yet, God rejected his repentance because it was not a genuine repentance. Because God looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside, but God is the one who looks after the heart. And, and God saw that Saul was not generally repentant. He just felt bad that he got caught. So there was something between the way David repented versus the way that Saul repented that was able to restore that relationship. And it was because David had genuine repentance, not just sadness for getting caught in his actions and his sins. Repentance is not just being sorry that you got caught. Number two... We see that repentance is not denying our sin. Listen, we live in a day where the Bible would say, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. People would love to be able to deny their sin as if the only sin today is saying that something is sin. 
Say, well, I'm pointing out and say, hey, that's not God's will for your life. Well, who are you to judge me? And what does it matter what I do? This is my life. I can do whatever I want. And so instead of repenting of sin, we deny sin or we redefine sin. So we'd say, like, abortion is health care. It's not murder. We say, homosexuality is not a sin. It's called pride. We say, cohabitating, no, that's just hooking up. We're just moving in together. Sex outside of marriage, that's not fornication. It's just a Friday night. We, we love to redefine it. So, so obesity isn't gluttony. No, it's body positivity. You see how culture and society rewords and redefines everything to make you feel good about continuing to live inside of your sin? It's not a sin. Let's, not, let's just deny that. Listen, God is holy and just, and he defines what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is a lie. You cannot redefine sin. You cannot deny sin. We must repent of sin. Number three, repentance is not punishing ourselves. Listen, this is what some people would want to do. Because of their sin, they think, the more I hate myself, the more God is going to love me. If I just walk around with my head down, feeling sorry for myself all the time, I'm just a horrible, filthy, dirty sinner. I'm a wretch. I am so wicked. Oh, I'm just, I'm just so pathetic. Might as well kick rocks. Nobody's ever going to love me. As if God loves you more, the more you hate yourself. That's just not true. Listen, God is not pleased by you putting yourself down. Listen, you cannot punish yourself when God has already paid the penalty for that sin. And punishing yourself will not pay God back. If that's the case, then why did God send Jesus to die in your place? Here's what the Bible says. That he who knew no sin became sin so that through him you might become the righteousness of God. When God sees you in genuine repentance, he doesn't see your sin or your shame. He doesn't see what you've done. He only sees who Jesus is and what Jesus has covered in your place. Jesus died the death that you deserve. And so you can't pay God back when Jesus already paid it all. Repentance isn't you walking around feeling sorry or bad or punishing yourself. Number four, repentance, it isn't managing your sin. Some people think they can manage their sin. If I just do a little bit here and a little bit there, everything's good in moderation. Maybe we can microdose our sin. Just take a little bit at a time so we can get all the filling with none of the guilt. Just a little bit of sin, a little bit of sin. You cannot manage your sin. That's what people think. They're like, well, it's not really that big of a deal. I'll just, just do it one time or maybe another time. And I don't really feel bad about it. And the, the longer you do it, the harder your heart gets and the more you continue to keep on doing it until eventually you're not managing your sin. You're a slave to it. Here's what the, here's what the book of James says. When, when desire is conceived, what happens? It gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it does what? It brings forth death. See, Satan knows you're not going to fall for a little lie, so he's going to get you with the, he knows you're not going to fall for a big lie, he's going to get you with the little lie. It's like bait on a hook. He knows you're not going to go for the hook, so he entices you with the desire. And then all of a sudden you see it and you're like, well, that's not really that big of a deal. And then you give into it. And what starts as a look, all of a sudden becomes lust. How does that work? Well, there's a secret pornography addiction. You're frustrated with your spouse. You're fighting about your kids and your job. And all of a sudden, you're walking down HEB and you turn left. You see a beautiful girl down the gluten free aisle. 
And you turn, you're like, boy, you know you ain't eating gluten-free. Why are you walking down that aisle? But yeah, here you are. You're looking at all sorts of foods and things you can't even pronounce. Boy, you need to get back to the hostess aisle with them ding-dongs and ho-hos because that's what you are. Don't turn down that aisle. But you turn down the aisle anyway. And what? What started as a look all of a sudden becomes lust. Or maybe it's a, a woman at the office. Start building a relationship. They call it a work wife. It's a text. It's a phone call. It's an email. And all of a sudden, you're in the office, hands touch. Well, it didn't happen at once. But if you give it enough time, eventually, sin starts in the heart before it ever moves to your hands. You cannot manage your sin. You can kill it or you can be killed by it. You cannot manage it. Because the, the longer you try, the more you just become a slave to it. You cannot manage sin. Repentance is not managing sin. Number five, repentance is not blaming others. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard preachers use this verse and blame Bathsheba for David's sin. That's what people love to do when it comes to sin. They love to blame others. It's Bathsheba's fault. Well, David was still responsible for his actions. God didn't send the prophet to Bathsheba. No, God sent the prophet to David. Whenever Adam and Eve sinned, Adam tried that too. It was that woman you gave me. Who did God go looking for? The man. You know why? You are responsible for your own actions. Stop blaming other people. You say, but they made me do it. Nobody can make you do anything you didn't already want to do. Take responsibility for your own actions. Stop blaming other people. Start, stop pointing the finger at other people. Stop blaming others for your actions. You say, oh, but I had a bad day. You don't know my life. My childhood trauma, it's because of my Enneagram. It's a generational curse. <laughs> Take responsibility for yourself and stop blaming other people for your own immaturity. Accept responsibility. Repent of your sin. Stop blaming other people. Here's what the Bible says in Romans 14, 12. So that each one of us will do what? We'll give an account of himself to who? To God. And when you stand before God on judgment day, there ain't going to be nobody next to you. You ain't going to have nobody to point to. It's just going to be you and him. And so you got to make it right with him today and stop blaming other people and accept responsibility of your sin right now. Number six, repentance is not excusing our sin. Like I said before, Oh, it's, this is my personality. This is my Enneagram. This is my heritage. This is my genetics. Well, you need to repent of your Enneagram, repent of your personality, repent of your heritage. You need to repent of all the things that are keeping you from being in relationship with God. Because if it doesn't cause you to grow, it's got to go. Stop making an excuse and start getting right with him. Number seven, repentance is not about someone else's sin. This is what we love to do in church. We're like, we say, well, I'm not that bad. At least I'm not like so-and-so. At least I'm not like them. You say, well, I'm not like David now. I mean, David, he murdered a guy and cheated on his wife. Like, I might be bad, but I ain't that bad. Well, Jesus comes along, and here's what Jesus says. He says, anybody who looks at a woman lustfully in his heart has committed adultery, and anyone who hates their brother has already committed murder. Gotcha. I told you, you're no different than David is. You're the same. Guess what? Not perfect. You say, but what about them? Listen, bring them next week. I'll preach about them. But this week, I'm preaching about you. Go ahead and text them and say, oh, you need to come next week. It's going to be so good. But right now, I'm talking about you. Number eight, repentance is not about manipulating God. 
You ever find yourself like, God, if you just get me out of this, then I promise I will fill in the blank. You know what that is? That's called manipulation. If you try to do that with the spouse, it's called gaslighting. You can't gaslight God. You know why? Because in order to manipulate somebody, you have to have leverage on them. You ain't got nothing that God needs. You can't be like, God, if I'm going to tell somebody about you, please do. <laughs> if people only knew, listen, God's like, if people only knew what you've done, if I start letting your secrets out, then let's see what's going to happen. Listen, you cannot manipulate God because you ain't got no leverage on God. God has, no, God, God has nothing that you have. But here's the thing is God doesn't need anything from you, but God wants you. God wants relationship. God wants you to repent. He doesn't need you. He'd be God without you, but he doesn't want for you to go without him. Number nine, it's not, it's not worldly sorrow. Listen, here's what Paul says. He picks it up and he says this. He says, it is godly sorrow that leads to what? To repentance. It produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. Worldly sorrow is guilt. But godly sorrow leads to grace. God doesn't want you feeling guilty. He doesn't want you having shame. He doesn't want you having condemnation. That is worldly sorrow that it heaps upon your shoulders and it prevents you from living in the fullness that God has for you. It's not just worldly sorrow where you feel bad, wherever you feel guilty, or where you feel condemned, where you can't go to sleep at night. If you're hearing words like you're pathetic and you're a loser and you will never be loved and you will never be forgiven, those are lies straight from the pits of hell, and that is worldly sorrow. And if you listen to them long enough, it will lead to a life of death and destruction and chaos and break. And things in your life will begin to fall apart. It's not going to be good for you. But it's godly sorrow. It's true, genuine repentance that leads you to life. God is not beating you up. He's trying to build you up. He don't want to hurt you. He wants to bring healing into your life. He doesn't want damnation. He wants salvation for you. And those of you who are hearing this right now and you have guilt and condemnation and you're feeling the shame and you're beat up, listen to you. Romans says this, Thou therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation is not from the Lord. The condemnation is coming from the evil one. Because godly sorrow leads to grace and repentance in your life, which leads to our to number 10. It's, it's not avoiding the consequences for your sin. See, I meet sometimes people and they're like, well, well, God forgave me, so then you must forgive me. Uh, not necessarily. See, David, he still had to embrace the consequences of his actions. God forgave him. He said, surely you won't die. But what happened? His rest of his life was spent in battle. There was bloodshed. His family fell apart. And even the child died. God forgave him, yes, but he still had to walk through the consequences of his actions. And yes, God will forgive you, but that doesn't negate what you have done. And you'll still probably have to walk through the consequences of your actions. And so if you live a life of drug addiction, don't be surprised if you have hepatitis. That's the consequences. Just because you're forgiven doesn't mean it automatically goes away. I meet people who maybe one of them have cheated on their spouse. And they'll be sitting in marriage counseling and they'll say, but God forgave me, shouldn't they? Yeah, but that doesn't mean that they have to trust you again. Now, hopefully through counseling, yes, there is a way of reconciliation and move forward. But reconciliation is not always possible. And just because God forgave you 
you're still the one who broke your marriage covenant, and biblically, they have the grounds for divorce in that relationship. You can't just be like, well, God forgave me, so should you. No, that's spiritually manipulative and abusive. You still have to walk through the consequences of your own actions. If you get arrested for committing a crime, just because God will forgive you, but you're still probably going to have to go on probation and pay the penalty for that crime. God will forgive you, yes, but there's still consequences for your actions. I remember just a few years ago, we had a, a person in the church who they had repeated accounts of sexual sin, and so we removed him from the church. People saw it so, so upset, but they were in a position of leadership, and they had no right or business to be in a place of spiritual leadership. There was consequences for their sins. Yes, God loved them, but they still had to walk through the consequences. They could not be in a position of leadership while leading an unholy life. The consequences were theirs. You can't blame others. You must accept the consequences for your own actions and for your own sins. It's not avoiding the consequences. And then lastly, number 11, it's not just mere confession. In the Catholic Church, that's what people do. They say, if you go to the priest and if you were to, to pray, you do this many Hail Marys, this many Our Fathers, you pray the rosary, and then you'll be forgiven. But the Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, and he is the man, Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is capable and able to forgive you of your sins. Confession is not enough. Confession is good, but confession is not enough. Confessing to a priest, confessing to a friend, confessing to a small group, that's not real genuine repentance. People say things to each other all the time just to get the guilt off of them. But listen, just mere confession will not absolve you of that guilt. You need more than confession. You need genuine, true, authentic, life-changing repentance. Here's what repentance is. It is three things. Repentance is confession, conviction, and change. Here's how we see in the text today. He was convicted of his sin. Nathan goes to him and he tells him the story, what happens. David is convicted of his sin. And then what does he say? I have sinned against the Lord. And then what happens? His life produces change. That's what genuine repentance is. It is conviction. Do you feel convicted for the way that you are living, for the things that you have done, for the ways that you have said or spoken, for violating the commands, the decrees, and the will of God? Do you feel conviction over that? If so, then you confess that to the Lord. And then here's what happens. David, he gets up. He washes his face. He washes his hands. He eats something, some food. He starts dancing. He goes back to church. He raises his hands. He starts worshiping. Why? Because God no longer longer holds that sin over him. There was conviction, there was confession, and now his entire life and situation has changed forever. And that's what God wants to do in your life through conviction, through confession. It will lead to life change that comes through Jesus. Listen, here's the good news. It's the good news is not that God will save everyone. That's what people want. As if God was going to save everyone. As if just because you die, you go to heaven. Listen, if you go to heaven because you die, Jesus is your savior, death is. As if everyone goes to heaven when they die. That's just not true. That's just not the case. It's the good news is not that God will save everyone. The good news is this, is that God will save anyone. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're at, what you've done. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how great your sin is. You cannot out the grace of God. You cannot outrun the love of God. His mercies are new every single morning. And if you're hearing this message, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, not 15 years in the future. Today is the day of salvation. Not the day you clean yourself up. Not the day that you get yourself ready. 
not the day that you beat yourself down enough, not tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. And the good news is that God will, God wants to, God can and does save anyone. That's the good news of the gospel. So lastly, as we close, number three, we got to see what repentance does. Here's the last line of this story. It goes like this. It says, David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. Following his conviction, confession, and change, the relationship between God and David is restored. See, God made a covenant to David that from you will come a king who will sit upon the throne forever. God made that promise to David as he was anointing with oil as a shepherd. That was the promise of God on David's life. As he goes through the palace and he goes through the battles and he goes through the fields, that was the promise that God has called David to be the king through whom kingdom will come that will never end. And David sinned. And for a moment, it looked like that relationship was broken. It looked like that covenant was broken. But David broke his end of agreement, but God never broke his. David, he sinned against God, but God never sinned against David. David failed. But don't you see this? God remained faithful because David has a son named Solomon and he goes on to become a great king he writes books of the Bible, he builds the temple and then Solomon has a son, he has a son and then the nation of Israel starts looking a lot like David and it falls into failure and disrepair and Israel is completely devastated and gone, taken off into slavery and exile and in silence Years and years, 400 years go by. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, from a little town called Bethlehem. Anybody remember where Jesus was from? Bethlehem. Where was David from? Bethlehem. There comes another king. And this would not be a king that would fail. And this would not be a king that would sin. This would be a king who is perfect. David and Bathsheba become due to their repentance, the great, 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 great grandparents of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in your mess, God can still do something meaningful with your life. Even in your sins, God can still bring about good in your life. Regardless of what your past was, God knows what his plans for your future are. And even when you fail, God is always faithful. He was faithful to David when he was in the fields. He was faithful to David when he was in the battle. He was faithful to David whenever he was up against Goliath. On the best days and the worst days and the highest of mountains and the lowest of valleys. And even on the worst day of his life, you know what? God never stopped being faithful to him. And for you, It's easy to trust and believe God in the good times, on the good days and the victories. It's easy to trust God when you have a filter over your life. But what about when you think about the failures of your life? Even on that day, guess what? God is still faithful to you too. He is still faithful to you then. 
because he wants for you to come 